Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's episode, we had the great pleasure to talk to one of the nicest and most thoughtful investors in Eshmeet Sadana, founder of Engineering Capital. Prior to launching Engineering in 2015, which now has three funds under management, Eshmeet was a longtime partner at Foundation Capital. In this episode, we talk about a number of topics, including venture being a service business, pros and cons of being a solo GP, what it's like investing in today's capital-rich environment, and why data is a double-edged sword. Now let's get right into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey, Ashmeet, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Samir. It's a pleasure to be here. Ashmeet, you and I have known each other for a very long time, and what has always struck me in our conversations is that I always walk away with something new. And it's very clear that you're a student of the venture game through and through. But you didn't start off in venture. You were at VMware. Then after VMware, went to foundation before starting engineering about six years ago. And I also like to ask the question of what catalyzed your move into venture and going from VMware to foundation versus starting a company? You know, Samir, I'm an accidental venture capitalist. Um, After VMware was sold, I was thinking of starting a new company. And I met the folks at Foundation Capital with the intention of raising money to start my new company. But, uh, you know, they turned things around, uh, said, hey, would you like to try your hand at venture? And it was too good an opportunity to pass up. And so here I am a decade later, a decade plus later, you know, just uh, in love with doing venture. And you, um, like a lot of people, started off and cut your teeth at a big firm in Foundation, which I think when you left had roughly maybe just under $3 billion in, in uh, management and decided to start engineering as a specialized shop. You know, a lot of folks, when they go from big firms to small firms, you know, have a little bit of a culture shock of all the things that you now have to do. What type of planning did you do as you left foundation to, to start engineering? And what type of guidance? I, I think you got guidance from the late, great Catherine Gold. What insights did she provide you before you started yeah, I definitely stand on the shoulders of giants, Samir. Uh, Catherine was instrumental in helping me think about the strategy for engineering capital. The execution of engineering capital was is very simple. Because it is such a small firm, I am a solo capitalist, there's really not a ton of work to be done in terms of running the strategy that I run. Um, it's really about the essence of venture capital. How do you make money sourcing, investing, and helping your portfolio companies where I spend all my time? And what Catherine helped me do is really crystallize what makes me different, how do you build a new firm from scratch, and what is a sustainable differentiation that will last you know, multiple market cycles. We've been in a bull cycle for a while. That is going to come to an end at some point. And I think any firm that hopes to survive in venture capital has to think through both the upside and the downside. So maybe walk us through that a little bit more. As you were, you know, you were starting, it was the early days. What exactly did you think about for your own firm in terms of the differentiation? And you speak about long-term sustainability of a firm and keeping that competitive mode. Walk us through what that actually meant for engineering in the early days. Yeah, the first question that Catherine asked me when I went to her and said, hey, I want to start my own firm was, why do you think the world needs another venture firm? And having an answer to that question of why the world needs yet another venture firm. Remember, we're in the service business. We live to service, to serve our entrepreneurs, our portfolio companies. And so being able to 
answer that question in a crisp way is critical. In my case, you know, that answer came from really knowing who I am, which is at heart an engineer, knowing what I love, which is computer science, understanding the market trends that were going on that were reshaping computer science itself, and coming to this contrarian observation that in Silicon Valley, which you think of as the heart of technology, most VCs and most startups are not really winning on the basis of technology. Their insights are not technical. Their insights are about consumers or markets. And so that's the gap that I saw that let me go, aha, this is really what engineering capital is going to be about. And hence the name engineering capital and the pun, you know, the sort of the double meaning here of, you know, venture capital for engineers and the fact that I'm engineering capital for, of course, my LPs. Right. And it makes complete sense in how crispy were in thinking through that. And I think it was a, a trend that was very clear to you at the time in terms of the type of uh, founders you wanted to invest in. But before we move on to the investing thesis, how you run your model, I do want to drill down a little bit of, you know, going from a big firm where you have a lot of resources to now being the solo GP at a new firm. What things did you pull from, you know, foundation? Where were the learnings from insight that you did pull over? And what are the things that, you know, fundamentally you wanted to build differently than what you learned at a big firm? When I joined foundation, I knew nothing about venture. I mean, yes, I had an MBA and I had done my, you know, VC 101 course uh, at Wharton, but really I knew nothing about the business. I didn't know how it works, how firms worked, how money was made, etc. And as you observed, I was coming from the operating side. So everything that I knew about venture, I learned from Catherine and Jim Anderson and Bill and all of these people who were kind enough to take me under their wing and give me this amazing opportunity. Um, and then when I put together engineering capital, because I had simplified it down to such a small, straightforward strategy, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure that was needed. And so I didn't pull anything. Now, would I love to have you know, a COO like Gene Trainer or Ted Meyer or someone with me? Of course. Um, but that's a luxury that I don't have as a solo capitalist following this differentiated strategy that I have. Um, so you do miss some of those things, but uh, it's very you can put together a viable firm very quickly today, given the way the venture industry has evolved and sort of, you know, the back office, et cetera, has evolved. I think anyone can put together a firm very quickly, assuming you can answer those core questions of how you're going to make money, how you're going to source deals, what makes you different. And when you did launch, I mean, you had come from an organization that was very partnership driven, many general partners, managing partners making decisions, you know, during those partner meetings. But when you launched engineering capital, and even to this day, you started and have remained a solo GP. Why did you go down the path of solo GP? And at the time in 2015, it was still tough to raise. And there was a lot of LPs that didn't want to invest in, in single GPs. What led to that decision? Yeah, so solo GP, I think, is an unusual decision and will always continue to be an unusual decision. In other words, even though I do believe it's a great way to work and it can work for some people, that's a small subset of the people in general. We are all social beings. Look at the pain we are going through with COVID, trying to keep social distance. So we want to be in partnerships. You know, that's the nature of most people. But some people like me are very happy working alone. We are by heart, loners. Um, we like to think by ourselves, you know, perhaps a little bit iconoclastic, thinking outside the box. 
And uh, it depends on a personal style. Warren Buffett likes to say that the best investment decisions can only be made by a single person and never by a committee. So I don't think that that's exactly right. Uh, I think it overstates it a little bit because there is something to be said for a partnership and teamwork also. Um, it's just very personal. It just depends on, on the working style of the individual and how they want to work together. Remember, even within partnerships, there are two types of partnerships. There are partnerships that are collections of individuals who are working together. And then there are partnerships that work together as a team. And those are two different ways of working. So it just depends on the actual group of people and how they want to put themselves together. In my case, I've been very happy working as a solo capitalist, uh, but I'm not committed necessarily to staying a solo capitalist forever. Could I see myself working in a partnership again? Yes. Could I bring in a partner in the future? Yes. Those are all open questions for me. What do you think are the pros and cons of running a solo, being a solo GP within a firm? And, you know, on the con side, if you can describe what those are, how do you mitigate around that? Yeah, the biggest con of being a solo GP is that, you know, you can start believing something that is not true. Uh, you know, you just start sort of believing yourself, looking at yourself, sitting in a bubble. And there's no, there's no mechanism to correct that unless you actively take steps to go out and make sure that you haven't drifted off, off the reservation, so to speak. So how do you mitigate it? In my case, I have a lot of mentors. I keep very active conversations with people. You know, I've done uh, what I call a fake partner meeting sometimes uh, to address key decisions where I would invite someone and say, okay, let's just pretend we're partners. Let's talk about it. And let's just think how we want to think about it on this particular topic. So, you know, people like Jim Anderson in the early days, Catherine Gould, Scott Bonham, et cetera, they all helped me think through critical and important decisions, including the decision to be a solo capitalist, for example. So that's how you mitigate it. The biggest pro, of course, is that there is no way anyone can move faster than I can. It is the fastest way to move is to be a solo capitalist. It is the way in which it is easiest to be a contrarian. You can make important critical decisions without having to justify, agree with, and I use the word committee rather than partnership because committee has that sort of connotation of, you know, being bureaucratic and slow and, you know, nobody wants to make a decision by committee. And so I use that word to sort of contrast the way things work. But of course, partnerships, committees can also be teams. And so there can be a positive aspect to it um, where, you know, people are playing win-win. It just depends on the nature over there. But as a solo capitalist, I can move quickly. My portfolio companies know that they are talking to the decision maker. I often joke with them, you know, after a presentation and I'll say, hey, guess what? You just finished your partner meeting. This is it. And they'll often laugh. You know, the experienced entrepreneurs, they're like, oh my God, the whole pain of, you know, going in on a Monday and presenting to people who are not fully up to speed on what is going on in the company. All of that is eliminated in a solo partnership. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and I really like this concept of the fake partner meetings and levering your network to help you think through things and mitigate some of the issues that could come up with your own biases when you look at a particular company or an opportunity. The other side, though, of course, is the non-investing activities, which tend to be much larger and much more time-consuming than people give credit to. How do you then think about maybe mitigating some of the issue related to those activities and how do you manage your time? So time is the single most precious resource we all have. 
And you definitely want to think very carefully about where you spend your time. I don't believe that you need a large team to be able to help portfolio companies or have a conversation with LPs if you are crystal clear about what you are doing, why you are doing it, and you can communicate it efficiently. So I uh, do surveys with all my CEOs, all my founders regularly to see, you know, am I being available enough to them? Am I spending enough time with them? How quickly do they feel that I respond when they have a question? How do I prioritize that? And so far, I feel very good about, you know, the, the relationship there and how people have been able to say, in fact, I often get feedback that, hey, you are my quickest response or you're my fastest response because all those layers have been eliminated from you know, having an assistant and having a whole organization that I'm supporting, all of that overhead has gone away. At the simplest level, you can, you can say that, hey, if there's five working days in a week or seven working days in a week, depends how you think about it, you know, I've completely eliminated all the overhead of the Monday, right? In the traditional uh, venture firm, most of Monday just goes in the partner meeting. All of that is completely eliminated. So I have an advantage of 20% just out of the gate starting out. Um, without doing any work at all. And then all the efficiencies that come um, by working alone, supported by all of the outside support that I have. Remember, as a solo capitalist, it doesn't mean I'm doing all the work myself. The back office, entirely run by Cornerstone, right? They take care of all the financials, all the hard work, capital calls, capital accounts, capital statements. All of that work is done by them. So I do outsource all those things. But the things that make a venture capital firm special that make it different, that allow us to return disproportionate amounts of money, that I do myself. And who better to do it other than yourself? Right. And it, it is a good point to um, you know note the fact that there are so many outsourced services right now to help fund managers manage their, their firms, at least from an operational standpoint. Certainly the sourcing and the picking and the helping portfolio companies does fall on you. And I want to go back to a comment that you made earlier about you know, you've run as a solo GP, you've figured out, you know, the right mix of how you spend your time, you have your mental model, but you mentioned that you may not always stay a solo capitalist. What would be the trigger point of adding somebody from your perspective? It's not size of fund. It's not business model. Both of those I've defined based, and I've had the luxury of being able to choose my fund size and being able to choose the strategy that I follow. And so, you know, those are not constraints that I had to work with. The thing that will drive the decision for me is if I meet someone who is the perfect partner, it's that simple. If I meet a person who I think can be the perfect partner, I would be happy to bring them. On that point, you know, a lot of people go down the path of starting as solo, then they add partners over time. And I'm always struck by the type of thought process that goes into adding somebody. You know, what would be a perfect person? What is that ethos that you've created? that you'd want somebody to fit in within what's that profile look like? It should be different for different people. In my particular case, it would start with the what I call the foundation. In other words, we have to have the same values. We have to have the same desires. We have to be aligned in the way we want to work, what motivates us. And then we also have to have certain similarities in our background. For example, the only person who can be a partner at Engineering Capital has to be deeply technical. At some level, they have to be a nerd or a geek. You know, I think of myself as a geek. I think of myself as a nerd. And you really have to have that desire to, you know, would you rather 
watch a football game with some people or would you rather go uh, read a few more articles on Slashdot? Uh, would you like to you know, hire an assistant to send out some emails on your behalf? Or if you're like me, would you rather just quickly put together a Visual Basic script with the Zapier connected to you know, an Airtable and just send those emails out? Well, I'm in the latter camp. Uh, you know, both are fine. There's nothing wrong or right doing it one way or the other, but I just am the kind of person who does it in that way. What I'm not looking for or what doesn't have to be open for me is the style of investing they want to do, what kind of a domain they want to go to, what kind of a market do they pursue, you know, how do they evaluate. Those are all different ways in which people think about companies. And I think there's a thousand different ways of making money. And uh, my way doesn't have to, is not the only way, is not quote unquote, the right way or the wrong way, um, certainly open to other people who think about companies in a different way. I agree with that wholeheartedly, at least the uh, the last part of the comment in, in particular, where you say there's a lot of different ways to make money. And we've seen that be materializing, you know, from the standpoint of the different type of firms that exist. You have, you know, large firms like Sequoia and Excel and Andreessen. You have specialist firms like yourself. You have growth stage firms. You have you know, small uh, collaborative seed funds that are raising five to $10 million. And we've seen success at different levels. You know, from my perspective, I put you in the bucket of a, a specialist firm that invests in a certain type of founder uh, and invests in a certain way. But you've also increased your fund size over, you know, the last six years from, you know, roughly 30 million to now 60 million with fund three. As you look at the growth on of the uh, the fund size, it's you know you really your business model reflects the size of your fund. There's a truism there. How have you evolved your model as you've increased your fund size, and have you seen that actually materialize for you? So, Samir, with all due respect, I do not subscribe to the theory that your fund size is your strategy. Uh, I think that gets it backwards. I think your strategy should define your fund size. Um, now, if you're a weak manager and you're not able to raise the amount of money that you want for the strategy that you want to pursue, then certainly you are constrained by the fund size that you're able to raise, and therefore you may be limited in the strategies that you're able to follow. But in the ideal case, what I would tell someone who's starting out for the first time is define your strategy, come up with the ideal fund size for that, and in the best case, go raise that fund size. Now, I was lucky enough to have that luxury. And I've been able to do that all three times. I hit my hard cap. I've only had a single close, et cetera, knock on wood, uh, you know, in all of these funds. Uh, the LPs have been very, very supportive in the way I've approached it. And so, you know, that's really what I would recommend people do. The reason I increased my fund size is because the market changed. And remember, we're in the service business. I am here to address the needs of the market. And so I'm always optimizing around what does the market need? What would be the best possible product which would allow me to look an entrepreneur in the eye and tell them, hey, I know you can raise money from any firm. And in today's market, for example, all the multi-stage firms are investing uh, at the seed stage also. I can look them in the eye and tell them, I know you can raise from all of these firms, but I am still your best choice to raise money from. And here's why. So, you know, I have lots of examples now where uh, you know, I've got companies where Sequoia has followed me, Lightspeed, General Catalyst, True Ventures, Crosslink. I mean, I can give lots of examples of you know, very traditional, classical, high-quality firms who I've worked with where the entrepreneurs chose me. And there was a reason why they picked that, not because I was the only choice, I hope not, 
but because I was the best choice. Going back to your comment of strategy should define fund size, what got you comfortable with, I guess, raising more money? And what were the exact things that you felt that changed in the market to get you to a point where it made sense to increase you know, to the, uh, the current level? My strategy is to be the first investor with enough capital for the entrepreneur to be able to remove technical risk in the company and then be prepared to raise traditional venture capital to take on market risk. That's the strategy I'm following. So how much capital you need to remove that technical risk is what I size my fund around. It's like, okay, I'm going to start you off. I think you got the, you know, you're the right person with the right idea and the right approach. Here's how much capital should get us there. It used to be one or two million. It's become three or four million. It's not 10 or 12 million, right? That's a different size and a different scale to take out technical risk. So that's the way I think about the opportunity that I'm pursuing. And that's how my fund gets sized. Another question I've been meaning to ask you is related to technical risk and the common perception that companies that have a ton of technical risk are going to be very capital intensive. And it's probably company and industry specific. But how would you answer that both in terms of that as a statement, and also I'd be curious to understand you know, whether that plays into your own fund construction model. Depends on the type of technical risk that the company is taking. There are certain styles of companies that are very capital intensive. So for example, if you were starting a new battery company, or if you were doing a new material science company, or perhaps even in some cases a robotics company, you would need a significant amount of capital to truly remove technical risk. However, in software, we have this luxury that a one or two pizza team, in other words, five or 10 people, can really build an amazing piece of software which can change the world. And if you think back to some of the more interesting technologies that have driven IT in the last 10 or 20 years, Google was built by a very small team. VMware was built by a very small team. Those are the types of opportunities that are a good match for engineering capital. For one, because that's obviously what I'm interested in and that's you know my background in terms of computer science, but also because those are amazing opportunities for founders. Founders who can build capital-efficient companies do incredibly well compared to founders who have to raise large amounts of capital to build a business. So the venture capital model is better suited to that low capital, capital efficient model. Now, when you scale, even you become a large business, because going IPO takes so much capital and sort of the public markets have shifted so far away, it often makes sense to take money in later stages in large amounts of capital. So for example, one of my companies, you know, Menlo Security, I was the first investor there, had a very interesting idea around web isolation, got started with a small seed round. I don't remember the exact amount. I think it was a million-ish. Uh, got started with, they just raised, you know, $100 million at $800 million valuation, you know, very classic growth stage, large round company, and they're building a huge business. So that makes sense at that stage, but you can get started with a very small amount of capital. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. And we've seen a, a ton of capital efficient companies start off with very little capital, grow to big companies, and be incredibly successful. But the countervailing force today is that there is a lot of capital in the market and in the system. And we do see early, early stage companies being offered a ton of capital at high valuations from all type of funders. From where you sit, how does that play into your own investment model? Is there these type of opportunities where you just say, hey, they're going to raise too much money, the valuation's high, 
they're probably going to go on a path of not being capital efficient? Or do you have some level of flexibility in how you think about it where it's much more company uh, specific? My job is to buy low and sell high. That doesn't put any specific number on the word low or on the number high. You know, you can make 10x your money by getting in at 5 million and selling for 50, or you are getting in at 50 and selling for 500. The question is not what that absolute number is. The question is, what is the growth that you see going over there? The capital efficiency point is very insidious because it is very seductive if you're an entrepreneur, especially a first-time entrepreneur, when somebody comes and starts throwing money at you, you know, more feels like it's better. More money feels mm-hmm. like it's a good thing to have. And so there's this default assumption that you should take more capital, you should be able to raise more money. And in fact, you know, a lot of the media and the press will follow that. Oh my God, this company raised this huge round, et cetera. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? That's not always obvious. And so there it really comes down to understanding and aligning yourself with the goal that the entrepreneur has. Are they building a real business or or are they simply raising money and trying to achieve some other goal, which is not aligned with true venture capital returns? My returns are aligned with someone who's building a real business, a long-term, sustainable, independent company. And if that happens to need capital along the way, wonderful. We have the luxury of there being lots of liquidity in the market, lots of firms available, and so great, we can access that. But if you don't need it, you can still build amazing companies. ServiceNow didn't raise that much capital. VMware didn't raise that much capital. Google didn't raise that much capital. Now, of course, Facebook and Uber, and they all raised a lot of capital. So both models are possible, but the former model is much better for the entrepreneur and for the VC. And I think some of that has been lost in uh, in a very capital rich environment where you know we have been in the longest bull market in US history and so even though we had a small blip in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic things have definitely roared back and right now money is cheap and it will will remain to be seen you know what happens if the market does shift and i do think companies that raise too much money too early with too high valuations do set up themselves up for some very, very tough, you know, milestones ahead if the market does shift. So that, that, you know, I think is a very, very good point. But, you know, one of the things that I often hear, uh, especially in, in certain markets, Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, probably Silicon Valley the most, is that some of the big firms are throwing much bigger rounds and giving the entrepreneur an opportunity to raise more money at higher valuations early with the promise of you have this big firm behind you. Now, of course, we know that the actual time that they get from the partners is relatively low. I'd be curious, do you see this as being fairly ubiquitous? I mean, is this happening? Are you seeing it? And as a specialist firm, and for all specialist firms that are listening, how do you compete with that? Absolutely see it in the market all the time. And if you're a very large firm, that's a wonderful way to market yourself, to make yourself attractive to the entrepreneur. And to some entrepreneurs, it may be attractive because there is a germ of truth in that. There is a kernel of truth about the ability of a big firm to help you in certain ways that a small firm would not be able to do that. However, what a small firm can do for you, a big firm cannot do for you. And I think my job is to explain to an entrepreneur what those things are and how I help them over there. And at the end of the day, always remember the golden rule, which is that company's success makes a VC's reputation. VC's success does not make a company's reputation. 
In other words, to take a concrete example, Google is a great company. Google is not a great company because Sequoia invested in them. Sequoia is a great venture firm because they invested in Google. So, uh, you know, you've got to remind yourself and stay humble and, and know what the role of a VC is. We are a service business. We are here to help entrepreneurs. But at the end of the day, companies win or lose based on their own success. Yes, on the margin, we can help them. On the margin, there are certain things which we do which make things better. And certainly, if you are an entrepreneur who has the luxury of choosing which VC, you should think very carefully about what value they will add. Um, and great entrepreneurs do think about it and they do plan out you know, what they want to do. Today, in the market that we have, the best news is for an entrepreneur that you can get the best of both. You don't have to take one or the other. You know, There's nothing which says that just because you've taken one check from one firm, you wouldn't take another check from a different firm with a different type of value add. When your own singer started Robust Intelligence, he took his first investment from me. We took our next investment from Sequoia Capital. When Amir started Menlo Security, we took, he took his first investment from me. General Catalyst led his Series A. I can give example after example like this. I mean, clearly small firms, big firms, and you're getting the best of both if you're an entrepreneur. The question you have to ask yourself is, who is right for you today? When should you work with whom? And how will that get you to the next step? Today, there's so many different choices, right, with the different type of firms out there. And I, th I think that's a very salient point. You've always been very good at trend spotting. And since you started in venture, you were at foundation for almost a decade and now nearly six years at engineering. What are the main trends that you've seen over the last you know, few years? And what do you expect on a go forward basis you know, as we move out of the pandemic? You know, we've seen things like potential geographic shifts. You know, a lot of people from Silicon Valley to Miami, we've seen the changes in the seed market, changes in technology. What are the things that you're seeing right now and what do you expect on a go forward basis? You know, I love to think about trends because obviously that informs how you view a company, how you view the market, how you view the opportunity and the environment that we'll be operating in. Though when it comes to an investment decision, you have to do it bottoms up. You know, you have to take it standalone and look at that entity and say, is this going to thrive? Is this little seed going to become the next big oak tree, right? That's really what you're thinking about. Trends in the venture capital industry, the biggest trend which has been reshaping venture is that we moved from being a single firm, which would lead and then be your anchor investor for the entire life cycle of your, of your company to becoming a stage-specific business. You know, the traditional venture model was the single firm that led your Series A was your largest investor on the day of your exit on the IPO. That is no longer true. We now have state-specific firms. We have firms like myself that specialize at the seed, pre-seed stage, and you have multi-stage firms that will invest in different stages. And, and then you have growth stage firms, which will only do very late stage rounds. And all of us are coexisting, and this is having a dramatic impact and still continuing to reshape the venture industry. It's not fully played out yet. So this trend is going to continue. The geographic trend, unescapable. COVID had a huge impact in unleashing the artificial constraints that we had and how we worked. Those have been removed. We are seeing distributed companies and this distribution accelerate. Though I personally believe we will see once COVID is over and once we have vaccines, et cetera, we will see some collection again to happen, some people wanting to come together, et cetera. I can tell you in my Slack channel with my CEOs, 
Some of them cannot wait to reopen their offices and to be working together uh, and sitting around a table and having, there's just no substitute for sitting around a table, working together every day, quote unquote, in the foxhole together. And so we will see that collection. And I think that will still play to the benefit of the Bay Area, though uh, the Bay Area is under risk. You know, we have many structural issues, which if we don't resolve, eventually we will lose the pole position that we have today and we'll continue to have for some time at least. Uh, as being a sort of the apex, you know, where the World Series, the World Championship for venture capital is played, for startups is played, is still played in the Bay Area. On the technology side, which is really where I spend my time thinking about trends, wow, what an amazing time to be investing in software and to be investing in technology. For the first time in the entire computer industries, in, in the evolution of the computer industry, if you think about, you know, 40, 50-ish years, We've had venture capital really active in the computer industry. The entire stack is being reinvented. We are seeing new companies at the chip level, new companies at the operating system level, new companies at the platform cloud level, new companies at the application level, and then finally new companies at the use case level that are being developed. And they're all up for grabs. There is no default play. There is no, no, no single player who controls any one of those layers completely. Of course, they're dominant players. They are players who are ahead. But uh, what an amazing opportunity for innovation, for entrepreneurship, and that's what gets me so excited. And then, you know, if you really want, I, I'm happy to dig into some individual trends within that in the tech side. But uh, please constrain the geek side in me, otherwise I'll geek out on <laughs> No, I, I, I think we all enjoy the, uh, the geek side, and, and certainly a lot of us in the industry are geeks, whether it be on investing or, or the underlying companies, and oftentimes both. The one thing that I wanted to drill down on it is the notion of data. And venture capital firms are now using data to guide, you know, sourcing or in some cases investment decisions. We've seen a few firms do that. Every company is employing data to some degree. But I've heard you say that data can be toxic in some ways as well. So I'd love to get your your thought on data as a concept. What are the pros and cons, and how do you view that from a technology perspective? Data is unequivocally the new oil. Data is powering the new economy. It has tremendous value that is being created with people who are you know, working with data. But just like you observed for me, data is also toxic. Data can kill your company if you're not careful how you manage it. And a good recent example, of course, was TikTok, where the company was almost killed because of the data that they had. And if you think about what is the data that TikTok really has, you know, who's watching which video of which teenager, you know, dancing or having a meme, et cetera, there's nothing that seems to be very important there. There's certainly nothing there that would, uh, you know, risk national security or anything like that. Yet, simply by collecting enough of that data, we felt threatened because of that data. So data can be toxic and there's going to be entire companies created to help you manage the toxicity of data. Um, I like to say data is the new asbestos. Um, you know, it's a very powerful, useful material, uh, asbestos, but it is also very dangerous and has to be used very carefully. And so that is the companies that have been created over there. So for example, I have a company Concentric, which will help you identify PII, personally identifiable information, in unstructured data. So every company has lots and lots of unstructured data. How do you deal with PII on an unstructured basis? That's a simple example of where data can become toxic and can become a danger to you if you're not careful how you manage it. 
Yeah. And you and I can probably talk about data for a long time and geek out on it. But I want to move to our final segment, which is our heat check segment. And I have three questions for you. The first being, what is your biggest learning as a VC? How to listen. I remember my first board meeting with Catherine Gould. I walked out of a short board meeting and she said, so what did you hear? That was her question. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting question. What did I hear in that meeting? And then she deconstructed that meeting for me in terms of you know, what we had seen, what we had heard, what people had talked about. And it is often what is between those lines. You know, what are you really hearing? We all have happy ears. You know, we all want to hear uh, what we like, what's good for us. The interesting thing in venture is to listen between the lines, to hear sometimes what is not being said. That is what I really learned as a VC. I love that. I, I think that's an incredible lesson. And, and Catherine, you know, had so many great thoughts. So I appreciate you sharing that. Everyone seems to have an anti-portfolio in whether that's a big portfolio or a single, single investment that was missed. What was your biggest investment mi- miss as a venture capitalist? And who was it? Why did it happen? And what did you learn from it? You know, I can certainly give you examples of companies that I missed, uh, which have gone on to be successful. But a more interesting thing is, what about companies which failed? What about actual mistakes that were made and the lessons learned along the way? So one of my companies, Panologic, I thought had an amazing opportunity. And we invested a vast amount of capital in the company. The firm was very supportive. I had very good co-investors. I had Mayfield as a co-investor. I had Goldman Sachs as a co-investor in the company. And I worked very hard. I really want, this is very early in my career, and I was on the board of the company, and I, obviously I wanted the company to succeed. And what I learned was money cannot fix a broken company. It doesn't matter if you change the CEO, which we did. It doesn't matter if you change your product, which we did. It doesn't matter if you hire and fire teams and work all around it and come up with different ways of taking it to market, all of which we tried to do. At the end of the day, that company failed and was a loss. And that's a lesson I learned that money doesn't fix companies. You have to really think about how it is that you're going to fix the problem that is is, is the real root root cause of the problem in the company. Makes complete sense. And I think I know the answer to this last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is the venture investor that you aspire to be or aspire toward. Who is that and why? Well, I think you're thinking of Catherine, and certainly she would be at the top of the list of the people that I have learned from. The way I like to say it is I stand on the shoulders of giants. From Catherine, I learned how to make money, the essence of venture capital. From Jim, I learned how partnerships work. You know, what is the nature of relationships between people and how do they work when they are together? From Bill Elmore, you know, these are all the founders of Foundation Capital, right? I learned how to work with LPs. More broadly, I learned how venture capital works as an asset class. You know, he is the master of understanding the ins and outs of the entire asset class and what is is the nature of all the relationships between them and then thinking outside the box of putting it together. You know, from Scott Bonham, the founder of GGV, I learned the power of personal relationships. How can you make that a superpower in, in how you work with it? I remember going to a board meeting as an observer once and watching Jim Getz talk to the CEO. And from that, I learned how should a VC communicate with the CEO in a board meeting? So I've learned from many people. I wouldn't give credit to any single one of them. And I definitely stand on the shoulders of many giants. Yeah, no, I, I really 
like that thought of extracting superpower powers from each person and, and uh, you know, becoming well-rounded on a variety of things as a venture capitalist. Ashmeet, as usual, this has been very insightful. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show. And again, I, I just wanted to thank you for all of the years of wisdom and support. Thank you, Samir. It's a real pleasure. And I want to wish you the best of luck on your new endeavor. Welcome to the entrepreneurship side. It's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Lock. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Ishmeet and Engineering Capital, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Lock episode as soon as it's released. 